Good morning. Good morning. Uh, how many of you have uh, family or friends in the along, along the coast of Texas, down in the Houston area? Raise your hand up high so I can kind of see because of the light. Okay, it's quite a few of us. So I, <clears throat> these these kinds of events are always stressful and they're um, horrible. And so I just want to let's just bow our heads and pray for family and friends and people we don't know uh, down there along uh, the coast. They're fellow citizens. All right, Heavenly Father, we just lift up to you. All the events that are going on uh, right now as we speak along the coast of, of Texas. And Lord, we just want to ask that you would intervene. Uh, we ask for protection for uh, the people, for family members of all of us, friends that we have there. We ask, Lord, that you would stop uh, the storm that you would, would cause it to dissipate. You have power over all things. We've looked at that in previous weeks, and we know that from your word. And you've said that if we ask, we'll receive. If we seek, we'll find. And you have control. You, you can speak to a storm and say, peace, be still, and it dissipate. And you could do that over the Sea of Galilee with your disciples. You could do that today. And God, we just ask that in your mercy, um, you would draw near because where you are, peace is. Draw near to Houston. Draw near to Victoria, Texas. Just the whole Texas coastline. We'd ask that the rains uh, would let up and that they would stop and that the storm would dissipate and that you would help people to uh, rebuild and restore uh, what has been destroyed through, uh, through this storm. And God, we ask that you'd draw near to these people, that you'd uh, give them comfort and strength and guidance, pray for rescue personnel, for protection for them. We just lift all these things that we know to ask for, and God, we'd ask that you would intervene in all the areas and situations that we don't know to ask for, but you know our hearts and know we would if we knew. So uh, please, God, show your mercy. Thanks for your grace, and uh, thanks for your presence here with us this morning. Speak to us from your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks. You know, a couple of years ago, a study, a survey on stress in America was done. These are done periodically, just assessing what are the stressors of Americans, the populace. And and real quickly, I, I just want you to turn to somebody near you and tell them what you think, what stress producing thing you think topped the list of the survey. Just one word or two, just tell somebody near you what you think top of the survey, stress-producing thing. Talk amongst yourself. All right, mostly what I heard was this. That's, that's mostly what I heard, so I hope the person sitting next to you heard uh, better than that. But, you know, as long as uh, nationwide surveys like this one, like these have been being done, one topic has consistently topped Americans' list of stressors. Money. Finances. That's, that's money. It's topped the list. Every time, regardless of the economic climate, it's topped the list as Americans' number one stress. You know, this was a 2015 survey that, uh, that I'm making reference to this morning, but the most recent one that was done. But in that survey, 72% of adults reported feeling stressed about money at least some of the time. Think about that. That's three out of four, 72% roughly. And then uh, 26% said that they experienced what they called 
extreme stress about money most all of the time. That's one in four people that you come in contact with wrestling with extreme stress over money. One out of four. According to the study, most of the money-related issues and stress involved things like this. How to pay for unexpected expenses. How to pay for essential things. A roof, you know, clothes, transportation. Third, how to save enough for retirement. Top three. That pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? I mean, really, if you think about it. Essential things, uh, unexpected things, old age, retirement, that kind of stuff. You know, that's pretty much covers it. Not much left out there. 32% of the adults interviewed and surveyed said that their finances or lack of money prevented them from living a healthy lifestyle. Translated, they couldn't shop at Whole Foods. So that translates to. Uh, which, you know, they're feeling better because Amazon bought Whole Foods, and so prices are dropping tomorrow. Just note to self, that's, that's the word on the street. And uh, that, uh, that brings joy to a lot of people who would like to shop there. Although, I want you to know that Price Chopper and Hy-Vee have already begun to feel stressed about money. Because now they not only have to compete with Walmart, they have to compete with Amazon. Not a happy, not a happy uh, combination there for, uh, for our local grocers. But anyway, point in all of this. During the normal course of your life and mine, every one of us is going to experience some measure of financial stress, some degree of limited resources. Finances and money will through unexpected things, minimally, if not even how to address the essential lives, these kinds of stresses are going to find their ways into your life, into mine. And today I want to remind you that Jesus, whom we worship, whom we follow, whom we pray to, that the Jesus whom we're called through Scripture to imitate and obey and trust, He can help us during those times. Because Scripture is really clear, Jesus has power over what I'm calling today scarcity, the lack of resources, the lack of money. He has power over that. We see that over and over throughout the course of Scripture. And it's important that you and I take this seriously, that we absorb this into us, that we not just intellectually agree, but that we, on a soul level, begin to believe that He does, in fact, have this kind of control in the world and in our lives has potential for that if we'll open up to it. And it's important we believe this because once we do, suddenly the circumstances of our lives are never beyond hope. And you know that in here, regardless of what's going on around you. When you begin to believe to the core of your being authentically that Jesus has power over scarcity, it's going to bring more peace within and less stress. Maybe you can move from the 26% that experience extreme stress about money most all the time. Maybe you can move from that camp to the 72% who it only affects you some of the time. Or maybe by the grace of God you'll move from the 72% where it affects you some of the time to the 20-something percent who uh, just doesn't affect you much. And it's not because you're filthy rich. It's because Jesus is a part of your life. And you know and trust to the core of your being that he can provide whatever you need whenever you need it. 
And it doesn't lead you to irresponsibility. It leads you to peace and joy, confidence as you live your life. Hoping this morning's message will help you head in that trajectory. If you've got your Bible, open it to John chapter 6. We're going to look at Scripture together. John chapter 6. Because what I think about this stuff doesn't matter, does it? Answer me. It does not. And if you'd be inclined to say anything else, you're wrong. I mean, it is important that we understand that whoever stands in this place, if it's me or anybody you listen to on the radio or anybody you listen to on TV, it does not matter how, how many likes they get on their Facebook page. It does not matter how important they think they are or you think they are. What matters is what does this book say and are they repeating what this book says? Okay? That's what's with me? That's, that's what matters. John chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 to 14. Let me just say this, I haven't said it in a while. And that is, if you don't have a good Bible at home, take one out of the shelf in front of you and take it home with you. We want you to have that because that's, that's, we just want you to have a good Bible that you can read and track with. So John chapter 6, an event in the life of Jesus as he's working with his disciples, mentoring them. And This is what scripture says. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. And they just say, you heal sick people, it tends to get the attention of people. It just does. I mean, there are people that draw crowds even in our day. Some of them maybe have legitimate gifts of healing, some of them not, and you're just kind of charlatans, but you, you make it look like you're healing people, and you're going to draw a crowd, because there's a lot of people that, that long for that, need that in their lives. Verse 3, Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, now Philip's one of his disciples, turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Verse 6 says, he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, one of those other disciples, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Jesus says, tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same thing with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now... Gather the leftovers so that nothing's wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. And when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he's the prophet we've, we've been expecting. They, they watched him healing people, and here they were watching him feed this massive crowd of people just like Moses with God's intervention, had fed all of Israel with man in the wilderness. They're just surely this is the prophet we've been expecting. But, you know, there are numerous lessons about life and leadership and faith that we can gather from this passage of Scripture. We could discuss today, but today we're going to focus our attention on three lessons that we can learn about Jesus and money from this passage. It's real important that we absorb these for the very reasons I mentioned a moment a moment ago. This will help you 
come to a place of peace within, a peace between you and money and the whole financial thing. And, and I'll just say right off the bat, what, what the text tells us and reveals to us doesn't address every area of Jesus' plan for how you and I manage money or what Scripture says about it. But it addresses the foundational kinds of things that it's important for us to just absorb, get in our minds, and come to a peace with within on, okay? Lesson number one that we can get, learn about Jesus and money is this, is that scarcity can sometimes be a test. I want you to think about that. Scarcity is sometimes a test. Jesus was testing the disciples. Look again at verse 5, verse 6. Jesus saw this huge crowd of people coming to look for him, turning to Philip, which isolates who the test is for here to some degree, though they all learned from it. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? One of the other parallel passages says, Philip, you feed them. It's like added to what he says here. It's like, where are we going to get enough food? Philip says, I, you know, presumably, kind of, I don't know. And Jesus says, you feed them. Verse 6 goes on and says, he was testing Philip. This is the point. He was testing Philip. Now, I want you to think about this. If the disciples were tested with limitations, if ancient Israel was tested with scarcity and limitations at times, have you ever considered that God might test you or test me? on occasion at least, with this matter. Honestly, sometimes it doesn't even cross our mind. But the test is, will we trust? Will we seek God for provision? Who is the source of our confidence, our well-being, our provision? That's, that's, that's the test. Who is it? Will we trust God or will we instead turn to ourselves and do everything we can to take control of the situation? Will we, will we turn to evil for help, as some throughout the course of history have been known to do? See, God wants to know. He tests Philip. He tests you and me at times because he wants to know what's in our hearts. And as important, if not more so than that, he wants us to know what's in our hearts when it comes to this matter. Second lesson that we learn about money, about Jesus in this passage, and it's a significant one, and that is that Jesus already has a plan for our scarcity. He doesn't just test us. He has a plan. See, the problem is, if you look at verse 6, he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do, but here's the thing. Philip didn't know the plan, right? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who speaks up in the text, did not know the plan. You and I probably aren't going to know the plan. It wouldn't be a test if we knew the plan. I mean, I've thought this through a little obsessively, you might say. If I knew the answer, the question's irrelevant, right? The test is irrelevant in this kind of a test because it's a faith test. it's, It's about us trusting God and turning to Him for provision. And when we do, there's provision. And if we don't, There's a continuation of scarcity, and we begin to realize eventually that I'm looking in the wrong places for provision. Jesus had a plan for Philip's scarcity, 
And He has a plan for us. And as I said, this doesn't reveal all that's in the Bible about His plan for us and money management, but this is the foundation, the foundational plan for you and me when it comes to the kingdom of God and all things spiritual and, and reality in life, when it comes to money and Jesus. This is the third lesson. It's the plan. Little can become much when it's put in the right hands. Did you track with me? This is, this is the lesson. This is God's plan for you and me when it comes to scarcity. Little always becomes much when it's put in the right hands. The right hands. Look at verse 9. Just see it as it's lived out in practical terms here in the text. Verse 9. There's a young boy here with five loaves and two fish. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said. But what good is that with this huge crowd? He... You notice he's just dismissing the importance of such a little. I mean, many of us, we've been given resources, we've been entrusted with gifts and abilities and money, and, and we just dismiss it because it's not, we're not Bill Gates. We're not, you know, pick your, you know, well, I'm not Warren Buffett. I don't have that kind of money. As though that is significant resources. It's a lot of money. But what matters is not the massed amount. What matters is the wealth behind, the potential for the creation of wealth, which is what God has, is unlimited potential in that respect. And so you read on in the text. Jesus doesn't even respond to him. He just says, tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men numbered about 5,000. And Jesus, then Jesus took the loaves. Get this? He took the loaves. He gave thanks to God, which is to say he blessed them, which is what you're looking for, the blessing of God in the little that you have. And he distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. How many ate as much as they wanted? All of them. All of them, including the disciples. Everybody ate as much as they wanted. And then verse 12 clarifies that even further. After everyone was full, think thanksgiving. You finish with the turkey, you push away the dinner from the table. I've, eat, I've you know, I got turkey coming out of my eyes. I've eaten so much. This is how, this is when everyone was full. After everyone was full, the text says, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftover. He didn't even cut off the eating until everybody was so full they had pushed away from the table. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five from the five barley loaves. Just to say that in the right hands, little can become much. Now, here's an important question for you and me. How do we put the little that we have, that sometimes we dismiss as insignificant, how, how, how do we put the little we have into the hands of Jesus on a practical level? How do we do that? What does that look like? Jesus highlights this kind of thing repeatedly throughout the course of his teaching in his life. Let me draw one passage of Scripture to your attention. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus gives this instruction to his disciples who wrestle with this kind of thinking constantly because they're just like us, trying to figure out how does the kingdom of God work in this matter. And he says to them, this is instruction, give and you'll receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over, poured into your lap, 
The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Do you get the picture of multiplication and what he's saying? This is what he's saying in this passage. When you give, you're going to receive back, but not just what you gave. You're going to receive more than you gave. In God's kingdom, giving multiplies resources. It doesn't reduce them. It doesn't reduce them. It it multiplies them. Now, I want you to think about this. What happened to the little boy's five loaves of bread and two fish? What happened to them? He multiplied them, right? He multiplied them. Because he gave them to Jesus, they fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, whoever else was there. I guess that men, women, and children, that's what you got. So they're all there, 5,000 plus. Then uh, what happened to the bread and fish? It ultimately became 12 baskets of bread and fish. 12. This was after... Everybody eaten everything that they wanted and were full and pushed away from the table. Now they've got 12 baskets after that, leftovers of bread and fish. And here's what I want you to think about. I've read this and studied this passage many, many times over the course of the years. And often what you hear the Bible teachers and so forth say, well, there are 12 baskets of fish. That was one for each of the disciples. They could take them with them. And, And it's a real nice thought. It just isn't what the Bible says. It does, I guess the Bible doesn't say what happened with the 12 baskets of fish, or 12 baskets of bread and fish. It doesn't tell us. That's just sort of their idea. It's, it's an okay idea. I got a better idea for you this morning. Are you ready? Ready? That's pretty weak. All right. All right. We're ready. Sit back. I want you to think about the kingdom principle that Jesus teaches in this passage and in Luke 6 and in others like it throughout the Gospels. The kingdom principle is give and you'll what? You'll receive. And not just receive back what you gave, but you'll receive back a multiplied amount of what you, what you gave. Think about this. I personally, as I was reflecting, I, it just it dawned on me. I thought, Jesus didn't just like take this little boy's five loaves and two fish and like treat him like maybe some of us would. I, I'd forget I'd forget about the kid because I'd be so moved by the fact that 5,000 men plus women and children ate. And look at all this, all these people who are now trying to crown me king. You know, that's what the passage goes on. I think Jesus in that moment had the presence of mind. If he has the presence of mind to say to a woman caught in adultery who shows up and says, you you who is without sin, throw the first stone. If he has the presence of mind to think like that on the spot, I think in this moment what happens is Jesus gave the 12 baskets of leftovers to the boy and his parents. I think that's what he did. I don't know if the Bible doesn't say that, but I think that's what he did. And I bet he put his hand on the little boy's shoulder and said something to him like, just just tell me if this doesn't sound like the spirit of Jesus. Young man, thanks for trusting me with the little you had. Take this. It's yours. This is how my father's kingdom works. Because in God's kingdom, giving multiplies resources. It doesn't reduce them. That's one of the reasons God teaches us all throughout the scriptures to do things like tithe. Tithe is not when you just designate a random amount that you've decided on that you give on a routine basis to the, to the people of God, to the things of God. That, that's not it. 
I mean, tithing is 10%. I mean, that's where you take 10% of what God's entrusted to you on a routine, and you give it to, to God. You do that right off the bat as an act of faith, and when you do that, uh, you're saying, God, you've given me everything. This is, here's the 10% you taught us in Scripture to give. I'm giving it to you first because I'm acknowledging and doing so that you're the source, you're the provider of all things. What happens when we give that way? Those of us who, who routinely do that, what happens? Routinely, you find that God gives back to you. And most of the time, it's more than you expected. That's why we find in Scripture, God routinely teaching us to be generous beyond that. It's almost like when we, when we, when we break the hold that monetary things has on our souls through tithing, it's like it opens the door to being generous beyond that and seeing people who have hurts and needs. And We're not giving our tithe to those people because we're giving that to God and to His, his body, but you know, we're... You know, we're being generous beyond that. We're, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's clothes. Sometimes it, suddenly it's easier to part with things to help somebody else. Maybe it's time and resources of other sorts. But, but here lies the challenge for most of us. When scarcity enters our lives, and it enters all of our lives at some point in time. I mean, when scarcity enters our lives... Are we more inclined to give what we have to God? No. The temptation is to, is to do this. It's just to, to clutch, to cling to. We, most of us want to keep what we have in our own hands, in our own bank account, in our own trust fund, in our own whatever. But when scarcity comes, Jesus is hoping that we'll remember Philip and his test. Because quite literally, we can't afford to be stingy and selfish in a world where we need God's provision, his protection, his resources. You know, Jesus' plan for our scarcity is counterintuitive, it's faith-dependent, and because of that, it's a challenge for us. When we look at Scripture, when we look at Scripture, not what Greg Montague says, but what Jesus says, little can become much when it's placed in the right hands. When it's placed in Jesus' hands. I don't know what's going on in your world of finances at the moment. But I want to ask you, is there any area of your life where you're lacking provision? You're lacking resources. You're lacking some necessity. And you're feeling stress because of that. Maybe stress, extreme stress, most of the time. Have you thought that it might be a test? And will you trust that God has a plan? You may not know it yet, but God has a plan. And essentially what he's eager for is for you to wisely entrust the little that you have 
not to addressing all of the needs in whatever way you think in your own wisdom makes the most sense, but for you to hold what little you have in your hands and with a spirit of humility to place it in the hands of Jesus. Because Jesus has the capacity, the ability, the power to make little into much. Maybe what he's really longing for, maybe he wants you to be generous towards somebody who's struggling with the very thing you are. And by generous, I don't mean give vast sums. I, I Seek him for what generous means for you. It may be, in monetary terms, a very small amount, but it may be exactly what the Holy Spirit is wanting from you. Maybe he's saying, maybe he's saying, You've heard me talk about tithing forever. Heard Greg talk about it. You know it's in the Bible. You heard it as a kid growing up in church. You know this kind of thing, but you've been dismissing it and shoving it out of your mind. La, 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 And the Holy Spirit is just saying, try it. Try it this month and see what happens. See if I don't give back to you everything you gave and more. Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying something else, but it can be multiplied when it's put in the right hands. You and I need to remember that Jesus has power over scarcity. And we can trust him with the little that we have. We can trust that he'll give it back to us and more. There are many, many passages we could talk about this morning. I want to close with this one because I just think it's a great promise. It's worthy of uh, memorization and clinging to it, just kind of keeping it in some visible place for you because it kind of helps you to recalibrate your thinking. It was funny, as I was preparing even for today, last night in the middle of the night, I, I woke up with all kinds of worry and stress just inside of me about money things. It happens to me sometimes when I'm like whatever I'm talking about. So I'm like... 3 in the morning, 2.33 in the morning. I'm like awakened with all this stress about money. I'm just thinking about this verse just kept coming back to my mind as I was reflecting on that. It just kind of helps with peace about this kind of thing because it underscores things. The verse like Jesus says in Luke 6, remember that one, but uh, Psalm 34 verse 9 says this, Fear the Lord, you his godly people. For those who fear him, will have all they need. Kind of reminiscent in some ways to me of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The new translations, the new, newer ones say, I shall not be in want because he's a good shepherd. He'll look out for us. And I've asked you, if you would stand with me, maybe you need to invite Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you. Uh, This morning you can do that as we pray and let someone here know about that. Maybe you'd like someone to pray for you today. Maybe you got something going on your finances. You'd just like someone to pray for you about that. Maybe someone you care about is sick and you have or some other need. You'd like us to pray for them or for you about one of those areas. But you need to demonstrate your faith through baptism as the Bible teaches. Uh, As Corey mentioned earlier, we're going to have a couple baptisms after the service today. We'd love for you to stay and see one if you've never seen one. 
or if you've never been baptized, to be baptized. You can join them today. We'll wait for you to participate. Uh, let me know, and we can help you with that. But I'm going to pray for us about all this financial stuff as we wrap up. I'm glad you made it. hope you'll join us next week. Remember, it's the one service followed by the meal. And uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for every single person within the sound of my voice. And you know how close to home all the financial stuff is. You've taught us throughout Scripture to seek first your kingdom. And you'll add all these other things to us. You've taught us not to store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal and hurricanes sweep in and wash away. And you've taught us to trust in you. And you've taught us that as we give, we'll receive. And we'll receive in whatever measure we've given. And it'll return to us pressed down and shaken together and pouring over. You'll multiply it. God, in a world that's ordered around clinging to our stuff and security being associated with that. Help us to learn that your kingdom operates differently and that we become different people when we're no longer clutching to things, but we're clinging to you. The things of you entrust to us, whether it be little or much, can flow into our lives and flow out of our lives into someone else's. and That we can live and swim in a financial river or we can live and swim in a pond. And we control the boundaries of it. God, help us. We want to we live in that river. We want to see the flow of your Spirit's resources into our lives and through our lives and blessing others. And, and we thank you that that's a ceaseless river from you. Help us, O oh God, to walk in faith and trust. And Father, for all of us who are trying to do that, would you, would you resource us? that people's lives might be blessed, that your kingdom might advance, that the things that really matter might prevail because it does take financial resources. ask that you'll bless the jobs of our people. Would you bless their companies? Pray that you would help them with everything like profit sharing and 401Ks and everything else because you know all about all that stuff. It was, you, you got a plan for all of our resources, all of our finances. Meet our needs and exceed them, O God, that we might bless and meet the needs of others around us. And we'll rejoice to be your children. And we'll be thankful that you have power over our lack. Would you go with us now, Father, as we leave this place? May we walk with that truth and that peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray.